Shalom, y'all. I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast, recommending it to friends, and sharing it on social media. I also want to let you know about some new projects I've got. I'm now offering three different workshops on great Hebrew men, on great Hebrew women, and on Hebrew. If you would like to zoom me into your community for one session or for a whole series, just get in touch, and we'll customize it to your community. Best ways to get me are by email, mersimcha at gmail.com, by Twitter, at mersimcha, or by Facebook. You can find me on the Two Christians and a Jew Facebook page. All that's in the description below. This episode starts out innocently discussing Eve and the snake, and quickly gets into Satan, wisdom, nakedness, moral autonomy, role-playing games, the origins of sin, good and evil, what's beyond good and evil, and the relationship between truth and love of God. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Two Christians and a Jew, where two Christians and a Jew dig into the Hebrew scriptures and see how we read them differently and how they matter for our lives today. I'm Jennifer Jones. And I'm Frank M. Taylor. Today we're going to be discussing the fall, Genesis 2, 1 through 7. We're going to be talking about Eve and a talking snake, and I'm super excited about any talking animals that we can discuss in the Bible. And I'm Mir Simcha, your resident Jew, and it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce the one and only Shanine Thompson! Shanine Thompson is a writer, a podcaster, a geek, moderately, and a Jesus lover from Alberta, Canada. She is the the author of The Hoot and Howl. Use that title to find her blog and her Twitter account. And that, by the way, is a short story based on the story of Jesus calming the storm, which appears in, I learned this last last episode, the Synoptic Gospels. I'm impressed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. And Shanine, we are very excited to have you on. So excited to be here with you. I want to suggest that we read together and I'll read it in the original and then maybe Shanine, just verse by verse, you could translate. And I was thinking we could articulate as many questions as we can or whatever questions are, are most important for us on each verse as we go along. Does that sound good? I assume you're going to let her use a translation and not make her just do it from your verbal on the Hebrew. Why? Well, I thought Google Translate, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Does that work for you, Shanine? Yes. Okay, so we're okay, going to be excellent. in Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Do we want to start with 225 at the tail end of the previous? I would be thrilled to start I with the last verse of the previous. Might... <laughs> wow. Did I say that to you at some point? or I don't know if you did, but... In my reading, I'm looking at there are all kinds of, or not all kinds, but there's a significant tie that makes it relevant. This is one of those chapter breaks that I object to strongly. Yeah, well, I do too. Shanine, is there a particular translation you're going to be using? I have NIV pulled up currently. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Okay. My go to. All right. So, chapter 2, verse 25. <laughs> Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I'd say let's go ahead and do the next verse because the relevance of this really becomes apparent once we read the next verse, I think. I like what you're saying because there is a certain common word between these two verses which mm-hmm. does not come across in any English trans- translation I've seen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Hmm. So what's the overlap? And hey, if you've got some suggestions for how we might help that to come out in English, I will pass it along to some people I know on translation committees. Oh, I've been thinking about this for probably 17 years. Okay, so I'm guessing if you've been thinking that long, you haven't come up with a solution. I I do not have one English word that will do this piece of work here. Okay, the thing that we are obliquely referring to is the word arum, which is a word in the Torah that has multiple meanings, and two of them come out right here. So the Adam and his wife are called arumim, which in in 2.25, we translate that as naked. And then in the following verse, in 3.1, we translate harum with reference to the serpent as clever, which begs the question, what on earth is the connection between being clever and being naked? I have an answer to that. Oh, um, go for it. In the album Licensed to Ill by the Beastie Boys, they have a song called She's <laughs> Crafty. I think it covers both contexts right there. <laughs> is that Ooh. where you saw this going, Shanine? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd like to highlight on that note, we, you know, we see this tie, but one of the things that sometimes Christians will read this and they see serpent and they see Satan and we can go down a whole, a whole path there. And I don't think we want to go there today. Maybe because of that, I think we import the idea of evil or something bad into this idea of being crafty. Oh, that's very interesting. It can be used, though, when you look at it the way it's used at other places in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't have to be negative. It can just be shrewd. It doesn't necessarily have bad connotations. Right. My JPS Hebrew English Tanakh, it uses the term uh, clever, which I I like that, but I think it kind of misses out on you know, tying those two things together. Clever works for the serpent, but it doesn't go back and work for Adam and Eve. Very, very difficult to tie together these two things in English. And actually, Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra treats them as homonyms. He addresses this specifically, and he says, there the word means naked, and there the word means more clever than all the other animals. He, If we want to get into who the Nachash is, who the serpent is, he also has a very interesting take on that. What do you think, Shanine? Would you like to take a little bit of time on the snake before we get over to eating fruit? Who is the snake? The classic take, I guess, that I've grown up with is that the snake is Satan. Like sometimes even hearing retellings, people will just say Satan or like the serpent Satan. There's a good reason that Christians tend to go there. And it comes down to references in Romans 16, 20, and then in Revelation 12, 9. So there's New Testament interpretation, but if we look within more Hebrew scriptures or ancient Near Eastern backgrounds that would have informed the original writing of these scriptures, we don't really see something where the snake is this evil embodiment, I don't think, until like the first century before Christ. We definitely have a rabbinic tradition that the snake is the Satan. Well, and then we can go into a whole thing with Job with the Satan. Right, right. The catch to this, though, is that our notion of Satan is very different from the Christian notion of Satan. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'd stick a pin in that and say, 
Okay, we're going to have to come back to that at some other time. But Rebbe Abraham Ibn Ezra says, what if the Nachash, the snake, is actually a stand-in for the Malach, the angel, Satan? He says, that could absolutely not be the case. And the reason is, then the curse to the snake makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. So then he says, well, maybe it's like some people say that there is an actual snake but then there's a malach, an angel who's supervening on that snake and sort of like riding it toward its own will, using it for its own ends. And then again, the curse makes no sense. So I think it's a really powerful attack on the idea. If you're curious, this forno has a really good reply. I don't know if this is the case within rabbinic interpretation, but at least within academic circles are discussions around the Satan, which is translated directly into English as Satan. Fascinating when you have those direct translations. Yeah, and they don't happen really often from Hebrew into English especially. But in Mm. this case, the Satan is a role, it is an accuser it can be in judicial context that would kind of fit in with what you were talking about of how you could have a satan because it it could have been part of the divine council those other heavenly beings that are subordinate to god that'd be interesting to have an episode on divine council but the satan might have been a role that could be played by potentially different malachs different angels different messengers or it could have oh, been that's interesting one. It could have just been one. So there's different ways of looking at it. And this actually taps into some of the discussions of Job as well. But I think that's interesting because your discussion there about the interpretation of the snake as being the Satan may relate to how we get the development of taking it with Satan and then developments during the the Hellenistic period. You know, when you look at uh, Eo, when you look at Job, the, it's clear that this is an angel who's playing a role. Yeah. We, for very particular reasons for how we understand angels, understand this as a particular angel with a particular role. That's what defines an angel as a distinct being, that it has a distinct mission. Um, so the distinct mission of this angel called Satan is to as we say in English, accuse. And one place where you see that root as a verb is in uh, the book of Numbers. If we go to, uh, oh gosh, how do you say this in English? If we go to Bil'am. Balaam, Balaam and his donkey. Right, so the the angel's not the Satan, but he's there in order to Satan him. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about talking animals. Yeah, you like talking animals, especially donkeys. (laughs) Thank you for bringing that back because I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I'm going to have a question for Shanine. You said something that kind of blew my mind for a second because I didn't realize that from the Jewish perspective, there was ever consideration that the serpent one was Satan because I thought that was a pretty Christian thing. The other thing, though, is that you've got that suggestion that it's a malach, that it's an angel, you know, one of those messengers. That's also a bit surprising and then that idea of, well, it's an, it could be, and, and I, I decided to whip out the art scroll hummus, um, cause I'm like, mm, why not? And it even says there, um, in my fancy, uh, commentary that I barely understand at times that, uh, Torah doesn't ex- explain how much time lapsed, yada, 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 uh, yada, yada, yada. And then the, consensus- the Seinfeld episode. 
I know. There isn't quite consensus that the serpent was literally a serpent. It was a serpent who came along and yada, yada, yada. Next thing right. you know, you know yeah. we aren't in the garden anymore. Yeah. Uh, they differ regarding what force it represented, whether it's the evil inclination, Satan, or the angel of death. That's what it, so that's kind of surprising to realize that, okay, well, that's actually a thing that we agree on as Christians. And then this is where I end up having a question with Shanine, because uh, you've got your Hoot and Howl site, and it's like uh, this ode to geekdom. And we talked a little bit before about RPG games, role-playing games, where we have all these different characters. How often, when you're playing an RPG game, do you end up with a story going along where you encounter a, a non-playable character that can talk or, or something to that effect, and it does good? How often in our geeky, comic book nerdy, role-playing game worlds do we encounter talking animals that, that have something positive to say? The last campaign I was in, werewolves and squirrels attacked us, so... so not often. Right. So when animals are anthropomorphic, if I got the word right, when they act human-like, it's usually not a good thing, is it? Oh, that's fascinating what you're saying. Like that combination between the human and the bestial necessarily pulls in a negative direction. Yeah. They're usually monstrous. Wow. I mean, I can think of some exceptions, like centaurs seem to be pretty noble in general, right? Right. So it might depend on where you're looking at it and the culture that you're looking at it from. Harry Potter, obviously. Of course. <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd about folklore. And so I have an unhealthy number of books about shapeshifters, like werewolves in particular. <laughs> the answer is- Werewolves work with squirrels though. That's my question. And that's what Shanine probably wants to know. Due to my unhealthy obsession with shapeshifters, most of the time it's bad, except in like uh, Norse mythology and in no Norse folklore, uh, there people can shift into animals. And at least from their perspective, they think they're doing good. But it seems like most of the time when an animal is acting like a human, that seems mm. to be bad. But I, I'm just wondering, Shanine, like, do we often see that theme in our storytelling where the animals are doing good. I, I can't think of any, I can't think of any good examples. Okay. Well, what comes to mind to me is the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Oh, that can't count. That's CS Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry you asked. And that's the one that comes to mind where there are good animals. But okay. I but actually that... wasn't thinking about Aslan. I was thinking about Mr. Beaver. <laughs> He's just so nice. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess that counts. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if we're talking about talking animals, if we come back and we're looking yeah. at the snake. So first, we've as we're looking at this, there's different information about snakes in the ancient world. And so we have this option from rabbinic interpretation that it could be an accuser or potentially a malach, a, an angel. We translated angel. Sometimes I think messenger might be a better word because of the connotations that we bring to it. But that's just yeah, I, I hear that. I mean, you know, uh, angel from angelos in Greek, just meaning yeah. messenger. And the, the word in Greek and Hebrew, Hebrew translates so much better into Greek than it does into English. Angelos, right, in Greek and malach in the language of the Torah, both can refer to a, a human messenger or to a, I don't know what the, a su supernal messenger. 
So we've got the idea that it might be some kind of malach or accuser. Then we have in Christian circles, the interpretation of this as Satan. So what we might call, you know, someone called fallen angel. So that fits in with that interpretation somewhat. But we also see in the ancient world that there was a lot of mythology around snakes and some of it was Mm -hmm. more positive than others. Mm -hmm. But in particular, we have the idea that in some circles, the snake could represent wisdom, which Mm -hmm. might tie in here with what we're going to be talking about, but also the idea that it could be associated with chaos and chaos monsters. So I think that ties in well here too, because what does the snake in effect do? He introduces chaos into what God has ordered in creation. And so we've got ideas of wisdom and chaos that are going to echo throughout chapter three, even though we're not getting to all of it here. Yeah, I just, I'd bring out that uh, we have a, a tradition that if there hadn't been this transgression in the Garden of Eden, then everybody would have two snakes to loyally serve them. And they would be just like the maximum of the maximum for efficient uh, servants. So that's, that's something to throw in there. Oh, another thing about these talking I don't animals. I want snakes around. I don't like snakes. <laughs> I per- personally, I don't understand the connection to wisdom at all, but there does seem to be something there. I mean, we do say that he's that he's the smartest of all the, the wild animals. It's the business about about the snake being a talking animal. I think that, that that's accepted by many commentators that we have. But then again, Rabbi Avrab Ibn Ezra with his ruthless rationality comes along and says, Everybody knows that animals can't talk. It's that the woman spoke animalese. Hmm. Oh, wait, hold on. What's unique to humans is that we have the faculty of speech. Right. According to many lines in rabbinic thought. So how on earth does this animal come along and start speaking? And how on earth are we not surprised, by the way? So it must be that she's speaking with the Nachash. Uh, she's basically Eva's speaking parcel tongue. And now we're tied right back to Harry Potter. Wait, okay. I, I aim not to disappoint. Okay. I... So. Trinket's speaking some parcel tongue to us. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, so basically, there's a line of thought that. Eve was born speaking snake. Not merely, but. I mean, but like, wait a minute. Okay, hold up. So there's a story about Solomon where Solomon gets all this wisdom downloaded, like the matrix. And all of a sudden, Solomon can even understand the animals. Yeah, very famous story about the bees. Right. So, So in other words, his wisdom was set to 11. And all of a sudden, he can understand animals. So they have speech, but he has the ear to hear them, that insight to understand them, if I get that right. So is that what is going on then with Eve? Like she... I I don't even know how to go down this rabbit hole. Because we're talking about that that wisdom that somehow means naked over here and clever over here. But if Solomon had that set to 11 and he was able to understand animals... So maybe it's that same cleverness that they, that she had too, that Adam and Eve had, and that's why she could understand the serpent. Uh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. It, you're saying that it seems that the intelligence of 
at least the primal woman, we don't know about the primal man, but at least the primal woman, her intelligence is completely off the charts relative to what we're familiar with. So when we say that she is Aruma, you know, maybe we mean that she's not, not just that she's naked, but also that she has this exceptional intelligence. Uh, we, We have a very, very strong tradition that the, intellectual faculties or the basically the the minds of the primal man and woman were completely perfect that they were able to see from one side of the world to the other and i i have other stuff about this that i'd like to bring later but um yeah this is a very strong vein of thought for us so, so these are not naive children just stumbling through the garden so if, so if that's the case then uh then, I mean, yeah, of course she understood the snake and it's not a big surprise. That's true. Yeah. Because she's got, she's got the naked wisdom. I mean, she's just rolling around in it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what you do with wisdom. But... Well, and then, well, and then the question comes in is, you know, how does the shame idea tie in? They were both naked, naked or crafty or shrewd or clever however and they crafty game yeah sarna has a Mm -hmm. commentary and his comment on the snake is this throughout the ancient world it the snake was endowed with divine or semi-divine qualities it was venerated as an emblem of health fertility immortality occult wisdom and chaotic evil it was often worshipped then he goes on and talks about that there was in Israel a perception, at least in some places, of a serpent as a monster representing primeval chaos and that challenges God's creative endeavors to its own ruin. I kind of rewarded that a little bit, but that's essentially what he says. I just rearranged it. Yeah, we're really like in Jordan Peterson's wheelhouse here, talking about chaos and serpents and yeah, well, but I mean, there's there's this strong idea, at least within certain circles, within mm-hmm. Christian interpretation, that part of what is going on within creation, back to Genesis 1, is not only, say, material creation, but also ordering and giving functions. And so chaos... Mm-hmm would be in opposition to that. And within other cultures, there's this idea of, of chaos kampf. So the war that the gods fight to overcome chaos. And that's not something we really, we don't see that. God is not having to fight a battle to create Genesis. So that is a distinctive that we have in the ancient Israelite context. So, yeah, I mean, part of what, part of what I got from uh Karen Armstrong's book, what was it called? A History of God? Yeah, a brief Something history like that. of God. She brings out that many of the words that we have in Bereshit at the, at the, at the very beginning of the Torah, like tohu, uh, which we translate as chaos, that, that some of these names over there are actually names of pagan gods. Yeah. And so the the Torah is using these names in order to articulate a different vision of what creation is. Like, okay, yeah, people thought these were gods. Now I'm just, I'm telling you that these are primal forces that are basically my construction materials. 
Right. Well, and you, we see that even here because while the snake in other contexts is going to be divine or semi-divine, here mm-hmm. it is one of the creatures that is subject to God. Mm-hmm. Oh, there yeah, for is, sure. It's just, it's an animal, a talking animal, granted, but it is it doesn't have, at least within this immediate context, I'm not talking about if we're reading it within the wider canon of the Christian Bible because we're going Mm -hmm. to start reading texts in light of each other, you know, with different conclusions than say rabbinic interpretation, but similar that you're getting these interpretations, later interpretations. But if we just read Genesis on its own terms independently, this is an animal and it's not something that is, has divine powers. Mm -hmm. That's it. If we can get back in the text here, I think that this question that the the snake asks her is really an exquisitely clever question. Oh, and isn't that the point? He is clever. Yeah. Yeah. So so he says to the woman, Afki Amar Elohim Loto Kol Is it really true that God said to you that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You said before that you worked in daycare, right? Does a four-year-old do the exact thing you tell them? (laughs) And how many times does a child, like, technically do it? How often do they do the exact opposite of what I said? Constantly. Right. Um. (laughs) I'm thinking of my own four-year-old where uh, she's going through a phase, which I think is going to go through adulthood, where... (laughs) I will say, all right, close your door. And what she will do is almost close the door. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm, it's that word really, you know, where like, did you, did you really say that? That's that's such a, like a child, childish, childlike thing of trying to play off a technicality. Like, you know, did you really brush your teeth? I mean, I put my toothbrush in my mouth. No, no toothpaste, but that's beside the point. Oh yeah, the, right. the smarter ones really like to see how close they can get. Yeah, and all, all I can think of early on that they can play with the ambiguity of statements. Yeah, yep. I think we see the snake doing that throughout the this passage. But what in particular did you find to be so clever, shrewd, mare? What what struck you? Well, I think part of it is how he, I don't think he's playing with ambiguity. I think that he's, it's like a hyperbolic question. He overshoots what is forbidden Mm -hmm. and overshoots it radically so that it pushes her into a position where she must say, no, we can eat from basically anything. And it sets up a situation where now he can say, hold on. If you can eat from basically anything, what's with this one tree? So, you know, however, he's going to utilize that. But it's an amazing question to push her into the position that he does. I don't know if anyone here has seen How I Met Your Mother. It was a TV series that was on. Shanine, you're nodding your head. Like, yes. you know, so like, you remember the character Marshall's talking about like, you've been lawyered. Yes. Lawyered, right? wow. It's a transitive verb. Yeah, yeah. He, like... Like he, they would get into some sort of weird technical argument and then he'd come out on top and just be like, you've been lawyered. And I, 
feel like to continue using the transitive verb, uh, the serpent is totally lawyering Eve. Like he's right. I mean, he's playing off of like the technicaliest of, I went there, technicaliest of technical, you know, meanings and, you know, flipping things around just a little bit to, to play with this. Like he's lawyering Eve. That's what I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was talking about pushing her into position before the, I, the word that I had in the back of my mind was shtup, which is Yiddish for to, to push literally, but the, it, it's, uh, not usually used in just in that sense. I mean, you know, this from English, uh, or English, if you shtup somebody, you're screwing them or effing them. And uh, yeah, he's, he's doing something like that. The other crazy thing about this question mm. is that if you follow the names of God, the divine names that have been used up until this point, the first chapter plus the first verses of the second chapter where we talk about Shabbat, there God is always referred to with the name Elohim. We translate it as God. And then after we discuss Shabbat and we start to get into this second creation story, then the name that's used is Hashem Elohim, the Tetragrammaton, and then this, this name Elohim after it. And that's true even in the first half of this verse. In English, that's where you're going to see Lord in all capitals. Right, Lord God, right? Okay. So the first half of this verse, you'll see that the snake is called the most clever of all the animals who were made or who, whom Hashem Elohim, the Lord God, made. And then in the second half of the verse, immediately afterwards, you have the Nachash saying to the woman, did Elohim really say that to you? Did God really say that to you? Hold on, what happened to the name Hashem? Where did that go? There have been some that have interpreted this light within a covenantal context because of the use of the tetragrammaton or Lord. Is that how you would read it, Mayor? I don't know exactly what to do with this. I think it's a fascinating shift. And I imagine that it somehow correlates with the way that the serpent is working on her. That's my general sense. The next step that I would take is I would say, well, Elohim is a name that we associate with uh, judgment, with judges, with kings, with uh, rulers, with, it's, it's, a it's the language of din, of judgment. Okay. And when we pair that name together with the, we're adding to that aspect of judgment, an aspect of, we would say, uh, rachmim, uh, of mercy or compassion. Huh. That there's an additional aspect paired together, and so that it's not the the way in which you're relating to God is not merely through pure judgment. And so here, what I see the Nachash doing, what I see the serpent doing, is roughly shifting from one way of relating to God, in which there's compassion and mercy, and a and place to make for imperfect humans or for humans who need work, to a mode of relating to God in which he's treated as a strict judge who has no place for the development of humanity. That's fascinating, as I'm thinking about this idea of looking 
at different ways of relating to God within this text. And, you know, for the next couple verses, we just keep seeing reference after the snake asked the question, it's references to God all the way through verse seven. And then it's in verse eight again, where we would read it in the English Bible. Then the, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God, but then the Lord God called out. And, and so you've got this repetition. Mm-hmm. And if we read it through with that understanding in mind, the idea is here that yes, there is judgment, but there is still mercy. And there is compassion and I would tie it. Let's, you know, go back to Exodus, what, 34, six and seven, where I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger Mm -hmm. and abounding in loving kindness. This we're wrapping up these ideas in here and yet we still hide. Mm -hmm. Or Adam and Eve still hide. Because it seems that we bought into what the Nachash said. Yes. We bought into what the serpent said, Judgment. and we shifted out of that Hashem Elohim relationship, that Lord your God relationship, into this uh, God as uh, strict judge relationship. Mm. Where, whereas that's not the reality. That's that's very shocking. Yeah, Shanine, does that? How does that intersect with some of how you've read it in the past, or how you might? think about it is there do you find that helpful or is this just me being a bible nerd no like i think that that also can kind of tie into the idea of shame when they had a view of god that was like good and merciful they had no shame and then something happens in that relationship and immediately they want to hide and they're afraid of him of his judgment he doesn't come judging them he comes seeking them out and yeah but they're just expecting him to be different because they're different yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. i think it'd be really interesting to dig in to how these this notion of seeing god differently ties in to this whole passage and reframing God. And that would get at some of the ideas behind the tree. So, you know, if we're at a good spot, let's keep going. Cause I'd actually like to tackle, you know, what, why did God put the tree in the garden? You know, what's going on with this? Why did God put something in there that they couldn't eat? And I think that there might be some interesting discussions that tie back with this if we want to keep going. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, should we go on to uh, three, two? Yes. Okay. We're we're pushing along very rapidly here. Sorry, let me read the next verse too. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. How about verse four? You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. What if it's such a funny English translation to me, you will not certainly die, like, you mean... There's a chance that I will. 
Okay, so I actually... Oh, you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. <laughs> the thing you actually brought that up, Mayor, gets into some of what I was looking at, Bible nerd moment, Bible geek, whatever. The grammar. And mm-hmm. we see, when we read it in English, you will not certainly die. We could read not as modifying certainly or modifying die. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at least within my understanding, based on biblical Hebrew grammars, not my speaking the language today, um, the Hebrew would seem to limit it to you will not certainly. So the serpent isn't saying you denying death. It's denying the certainty. And it's just it's another little tweak. It's not right. because you would just because of the construction, you have an infinitive absolute. Yeah. For yeah, those yeah, who are yeah. like Hebrew, you've got an infinitive absolute plus a finite verb. The, the and if ser- you wanted to negate die, you would not you would modify the finite verb. Yeah. The serpent is lawyering once again. He's you know, he's just fiddling with words just enough that he can't be accused of totally getting it wrong. That's what it seems like. Well, yeah, and so it's interesting because um Back in 217 is where God has said, you know, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And it was this same construct, this infinitive absolute and finite verb that has this emphatic idea that you will surely die. Um, there's, there's no negotiating this. And then the woman, though, she just uses the finite verb. We will die. And so she doesn't reiterate the same precise idea we will surely die and then the snake takes what she has and plays with it so the snake is kind of playing on both what god has said and what she has said she's saying she says we we aren't allowed to to do this lest we die yeah or she does just a little bit dusty i'm looking for a different word um lest is how i hear it yeah, I mean, it's, it's the idea it, of if we do it, we will die. But it doesn't have that emphatic piece to it. I mean, the truth is there's an ambiguity in her statement, too. It could be very strong. Like, if we do this, then we die. But it's not that strong. It's more like, if we do this, we could come to the eventuality that we die. Like th- this could be a step along the road to death. I don't have any kind of like yeah, and then he authoritative and tradition. This, these are just the connotations that I'm picking up on. Okay. But that fits in exactly with this idea that the snake is negating the certainty of it. He's not negating the consequence itself. He's negating the certainty. So it may very yeah. well be picking up on that. He's picking up on that and playing with that. Yeah, she's saying, listen, I'm playing it safe. And he's saying, he's, I mean, the, the salient part about lo moth to muthun, about that, um, uh, what did you call it, uh, infinitive absolute? Yeah. Right, with the negation there, that ambiguous uh, negation, is that it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe that's more important than having a very clear interpretation of what he means whether he means you will certainly not die or he means it's not certain that you would die well and i think this takes us back to the question from 217 
where in some of the older English translations, it's it's Bayom in that day is identified as the day you, I don't have the verse right in front of me, but in the day mm-hmm. that, you, that you shall surely die. Um, mm-hmm. But there are many other places within the Hebrew scriptures where Bayom is going to just be translated when and uh, one place that immediately comes to mind about that, I actually wrote down the reference, but is in Numbers talking about the wilderness generation that they are going to, uh, Numbers 2665. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have refused to enter the land. They're going to have to go back to the wilderness. They're going to wander mm-hmm. in the wilderness. And it's this idea that in, in the d- Bayom, you will die there. It's the idea isn't that they will die immediately, but that there is a death sentence. And so we actually have a tradition that there were mass deaths each year on that day. That's interesting. So you really do pick up on that idea of in that day. Yeah. That that day became like a day appointed for mourning, basically. That is Tisha B'Av. Well, that, that's the that's day of the destruction of the temple. In, that's going to be in future days too, though. It's not just that one day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This is the primal Tishabov. Yeah. So so it's the idea, because sometimes Christians will go along this road, and I don't know, Shanine, if you've ever heard this, but, well, they didn't die, so either God, you know, what happened? They must have died a spiritual death or something like that. Whereas if we're doing just a strict exegesis, it's more dealing with, the idea that this is a death sentence that they're going to get kicked out of the garden. They will lose access to the tree of life and therefore mm-hmm. they die. I just wanted to kind of tackle that question because that gets asked mm-hmm. a lot in Christianity. I mean, mm-hmm. have you heard those interpretations or questions, Shanine? Yeah. I think like it's often interpreted as either like before they did that, they could have lived forever. But now that they did that, people die now mm-hmm. or that it's like a spiritual death. Shanine, how often do you how often have you heard sermons about just these few verses? How often someone teach on it on a Sunday? Um probably not very. Oh really? Probably heard the story told more in Sunday school as a child than hearing it yeah. as a sermon as an adult. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking now like i i'm not sure how many sermons i've heard on this we're having a really fun like like nerdy discussion about it but i can't think of the last time a pastor uh taught from these verses right so it seems pretty rare you don't want to hear about the sermons i've heard on it i mean okay i gotta hear okay give me the worst women are the problem ah yeah okay or, or the, if mm. the guy had stood up and, and been the leader of the family that he's called, then none of this would have happened. We're going to let the woman, yes. she didn't know. So the, I, 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 I take it back. I, I have gotten that sermon. Yeah. I have gotten that sermon about biblical masculinity where they're like, Adam was a wuss. Uh, if he had stood up and been there and if he hadn't been over just, uh, you know, scratching himself and playing video games, he would have stopped Eve from doing that like i've 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 heard that sermon of like adam was just uh 
he was not a manly man and he should have been there talking to the servant, not letting his wife do it. Adam should have been in charge of his home. So I've heard that, which is um, like a super downer because at the same time they're saying that, like my wife is there with like, what, I, 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 I can't speak for myself. Like I, I have to have my husband talking to the serpent. So it's like, that always leads to relationship strife. Um, but, yeah. Right? I don't think I've heard that in a sermon, but I definitely have heard the ideas a lot, um, especially a lot of blame placing on Eve, calling her gullible and easy to deceive. But then suddenly in the next verse, she's like crafty enough to seduce Adam into right and doing that as well. And what I've heard in a lot of like uh, men's teachings is, well, you know, maybe Eve was gullible, but that's the man's fault for letting her be gullible. Like it, like taking the blame off of her, not denying her gullibility, but saying that the man's job was to protect her from that. And he didn't do that. And hmm. so I don't, I don't feel like either of those are super helpful. Well, and I, I feel like this passage is more looking at trying to help us understand why humanity is where it is rather than focusing on teaching particular gender roles. Right. I mean, if we I mean, look if... at the context of the passage, what's it trying to teach? I mean, that's kind of my take. Mayor, you're kind of. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you look like you're said, thinking. I'm thinking about, about these dynamics and wondering like, I, it's hard for me to see how a close reading that actually cares about the words that are written would get to such a simplistic black and white interpretation of Eve's role in this. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if that's the case, then it seems like there must be an agenda, like there must be an interest behind those teachings. And I'm just wondering yeah. what on earth would that interest be? Is it like I'm blaming Eve to own the libs? Is it is it that kind well, of thing? And this is something that honestly, you know, we talked about going down a rabbit trail with Satan. We can do the same thing with this. And yeah. mm. it, and it's going to start tying into some of the New Testament passages. And I think, again, this would be probably a place to put a pin in it and maybe come back another episode. Mm. But I think for me, you know, you said how we get there from the reading and the words. And I think this, this raises the question of when we're coming to the text, are we bringing specific questions to the text or are we coming asking, what is this text trying to communicate? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of gets back to something that Tracy commented on a couple of weeks ago. And that was the idea of, am I seeking answers in the text or am I seeking God? Mm -hmm. And like this idea where you talked about God as judge and God as merciful to me, if I see that, when I come to this text, mm. it's revealing something to me about God that mm -hmm. is profound. And right. I think a lot more helpful in our walk of faith than this is how we need to live in our particular roles. Yeah. I mean, at, at this point, we don't really see any prescribed roles for Adam and Eve, the first taste of that 
seems to be in the curses. I don't see any hint of anything like gender roles, really, until we come to the curses. But that's already a misnomer because the, the word auror, cursed, is not applied to neither to the man nor to the woman. It's applied only to the serpent and to the earth. Yes, I was just thinking that. I kind of feel like every sermon I've heard that remotely relates to these chapters, maybe not even sermon, but like teaching has almost always had something to do with gender roles where Mm. it's a call of exhortation in recent times, a call of exhortation to the men to be more manly men and, you know, protect their wives from serpents um, or in unfortunate roles, uh, you know, something where we're still trying to blame women for talking to a snake, even though she was clearly the one that had the wisdom to do so. What if we give the devil his due? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, and the fact that there's some kind of sexual dynamic going on here, I think that's undeniable. I don't think there's any... Sexual or gender? Oh, I think that sex is running through all these verses. Okay. I think it's very, very important. I don't think it's really possible to to get around it. I think we'd be doing a kind of violence to the text if we did. To read this and have some sense that this should speak to human sexuality and to gender and how we construct our societies and how we see ourselves with reference to those things, I, I, I think that's valid. I just don't want people to do that in a stupid way. I don't have anything to say against any particular person because I really I really don't know. I can't assess what people have said. But this is really, really subtle stuff. Well, and to give so, some kind of simplistic conclusion. Mm. Okay, so I have a question for you then. And this would kind of tie into a little bit in the next verse. Um, so the serpent in verse four, you will certainly not die. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that would take us back to the command we are talking about. And we've kind of assumed everyone knows we're talking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you talked about sex kind of running through this whole, this whole passage. And there is one particular interpretation that reads this tree and this knowledge specifically as being sexual knowledge. Is that where you're seeing the idea that it's running throughout this passage? Is it because you're reading it with the tree or what is bringing that to the forefront for you or, or in this background knowledge? I don't, Maybe oh, wow. There's there's so much going on here. Um, Shanine, I know this, this is something you mentioned to me in terms of uh, what is knowledge, right? Yeah. Did, how, would, how would you get into that? Basically, as Christians, when we look at the eating of the fruit, we really focus on the evil part. Like mm. they were in the garden and it was good. Like they already knew what good was supposedly and they eat the fruit and suddenly have this knowledge of evil that it exists and like how they can do it and that's 
what the eating of the fruit is. They suddenly know evil, but like it clearly says they will know good and evil. So like, what is it actually talking about? And then in relation to that, what does knowing really mean? Is it like having a complete intellectual understanding of something? Is it having an experience of something? So many questions. Yeah, I think that those are really, really strong questions. I want to come back to to the issue of good and evil as opposed to just evil, because I, I, I have something that, that I think you'll appreciate on that. But just in reference to knowledge here, since, since Jen was bringing that up too, um, that verb yodea, yada, uh, with the, the root yodalet ayin, that is used for, you could say like experiential knowledge. I, I think that's, that's a good way of looking at it. I would say maybe intimate knowledge. And it's also used for, uh, for sexual intercourse. Actually, maybe, maybe the best translation would be like interrelationship or intercourse. That that's that's what it is. It's not a euphemism. You know, people say uh, in English, uh, "Oh, knowing in the biblical sense, right?" Like knowing was some kind of biblical euphemism. I I think it comes across that way in English, but no, that's just the word in in the language of the Torah. And Shanine, you're in Canada, and I'm sure you've taken a French class or two. And my my understanding with Yodea is that the best way to it's the equivalent of savoir in French. And then the other word for to know in Hebrew is more closer to an equivalent of connect, that there's that deep, thorough knowledge. And then there's a, I know about kind of sense, like je connais quelqu'un, I know someone, je connais mère, but I couldn't say je sais mère. And if I were to say je sais mère, that means that Mare, we we know each other on a completely different plane of existence. That's how thoroughly I know, and that's the best way that I can think of it. But we don't we don't have two words that mean to know in English, but we do in the Romance languages. We have them in French and Spanish and Portuguese, where we can equate one or one to the other. So well, you you have um, all sorts of words pertaining to intellect and intelligence. There's to understand. There's to the, the word uh, to see is used for intellectual knowledge in English. I mean, there's, right. I don't think English is, is lacking a vocabulary for talking about, for talking about knowledge. I, I guess the, the thing that I'd emphasize here is that when we're talking about knowledge, there's no break in thinking about intellectual knowledge or intimate sexual knowledge. So like I, I think like it's it's really easy for us to get caught up on the sexual part because probably because of the events that we're reading about right now. But the the common denominator, the thing that's fundamental and essential in these things is the intimacy. Intimacy or experiential or both. Yeah, I think those come together. I, I don't um, know if you can be intimate with with anything without having without an experience, experience of. Yeah. Yeah. So within exegetical circles, within historical critical interpretation, you're going to see very different approaches um, 
than some of what you're drawing on. And so the focus within those circles would be on, yes, there is this idea of knowledge and it's specifically it's talking about, but it's a specific kind of knowledge is specifically knowledge of good and evil. And so the idea that it's good and evil is going to limit the scope of the knowledge from a rather wider experiential knowledge to knowledge of good and evil, whatever that may mean. Now, if we read it in the broader context of scripture, a more, whether it's Hebrew Bible or Christian Bible, you're going to start bringing other things into, into it, but a strict focus on Genesis three or Genesis two and three would, would limit it. And oh, what well, you're saying, that's, that's exactly where I want to go. Oh, okay. Uh, in hey, terms of, good. in terms of knowledge, but uh, I'd suggest let's, let's uh, at least get the next few verses okay. in our ears before we go there. Well, oh, maybe stop me if I'm being tiresome. If I can go back to the idea of this whole section being completely saturated with sexuality. Is that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people um, would find it that way. My North Expelled, American right? Christian ears are feel very uncomfortable. So uh, trigger <laughs> warning, PG-13, get guidance, something like that. Um, just... Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, we are uncomfortable, I think, in our culture talking about sex. So anytime you say it, you know, it's going to make us nervous. But it's it's that, well, right? right? I mean, right? Like, well, it's the misuse of it that's the problem. Oh, you be quiet, you. Um, <laughs> being all sensible like that. I don't but think that's true. I don't think it's the misuse that's the problem. Well, I the think problem he, is... Here's the thing. It's that word shame, right? Mm. So... You know, if they're naked and they felt no shame, that's like foreshadowing that they're going to feel shame for being naked. You know, well, hold on, hold on. Are you saying that it's a it's a good thing that they don't feel shame? Well, w w what I'm talking about is in what my experience in, uh, you know, North American American Christianity is that. You know, the shame is attached to the nakedness and uh, it's like, that was the bad thing that really happened that we've got that. Like I've, I've heard that mentioned in sermons before that Judea is the sexual knowledge and Adam and Eve learned about sex as a result of this. And that's what ruined everything. Like that's kind of a theme that I've heard many times that, I haven't yeah, I mean, heard it that bluntly, but I've I've heard kind of well. Well, they don't say quite specifically sex ruined everything, but I mean that's that's a theme that has been I that has been preached in enough churches that the shame is the, the fact that I didn't feel any shame is like that was a lack of sexual shame for being naked. Yeah. Like that's a thing that I've heard, but I've also spent a lot of time going to Southern Baptist churches, and as you know they don't allow, you know, they don't allow sex because it might lead to the dancing. You know, that's their. <laughs> Wait, hold on. You heard me. <laughs> For someone who doesn't yeah. know, they're exactly to, the opposite. <laughs> I need to, I need to back up a little bit here. Um, so hold on. You're saying, first of all, that it's a good thing that they didn't feel 
embarrassed, even though they were naked. And then uh, I have a sense that there's some contradiction here, but I'm not quite on it yet. Then you're also saying that sex winds up messing everything up. Sex becomes this huge problem afterwards, and it's shame that accompanies sex. I wouldn't go that far. Not quite sex, but the nakedness. So, and 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 sex in this, yeah, sex in this term terms like I'm referring to sexual intercourse, but um, it's a collection of themes that I hear a lot. Who, who let the dogs out? Yes, I. Who let the no 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 that song? Who let the dogs out? Is all about men harassing women. That's the the origin of that song. You have to look it up on Wikipedia. It's a fascinating I, story. That song. I, I I really don't want to because the university that I went to, the, our mascot was the Salukis, which is a kind of dog. So they played that song at every single thing ever. I hate and that song. <laughs> I I despise it with all of my bones. They they hate that song. So but huh? Is well, what you, I'm also gonna say. Didn't think of that. Okay. A second ago, or a little bit ago, Mayor, you asked Frank, and you sounded kind of surprised. And I think you were talking about 225, where it says they were naked and they had no shame. And you said, and that's a good thing? Do you not think that was a good thing? How do you read that there, the lack of shame in 225? Yeah, that that seems to be the, the primal problem. Okay, now that's a huge interpretive difference because we see that as good. There was no wow. shame. Wow. So because I mean, if I could wrong had happened, whether we're talking about sex or not, and let's just we can set that aside for the moment. Mm-hmm. They were naked, they were they were still in a place of obedience and proper relationship with God, whatever that entailed and looked like, sex or no sex but everything and there is no shame yeah the, no this we this is a huge that as a problem very good thing so this is a wow. key interpretive difference we have yeah so for for you that's like an idyllic state and for us we look at that and we go oh no 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 i mean if i could just read you rashi here so rashi says and they were not ashamed for they did not know what modesty meant so as to distinguish between good and evil although he adam had been endowed with knowledge to give names to all creatures, yet the they had no inclination to, to evil. It was not an active thing in them. And I don't like this translation. But if there's no inclination to evil, then why would... Hold on to that question. Let me give you a different translation for this. Okay. Because I mean, there's a very simple intuitive reason for not having shame being a terrible problem, which is, well, they're naked. They're in an inappropriate state. This is not an appropriate way to be before God, to be with each other. And one of the commentators even goes so far as to say, the very next thing you expect to be written here is, and then God made them clothing. But that doesn't come until the end of, I guess, chapter three, where he makes them clothing, right? And then there's all kinds of fascinating interpretations of what that clothing is. Yeah, there's a lot to say about yeah, clothing here. Yeah. I have no, a great I get that. for us when we want to tackle that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot to say about clothing. Clothing is a very, very important theme in all the Kabbalistic literature too, by the way. There's another element, another sort of like character in this story that Rashi brings in his commentary, which is that they they had no evil inclination yet. The, those are his words. Yetzirah is 
um, is the term that we have, an inclination toward evil. There's no tendency in them, no pull, no draw toward, toward what's evil. And so then you could ask, what is the obvious the, yeah. yeah, I'm kind of thinking through the whole thing. It is, I'm just, my mind is kind of blown at the moment because this is a completely different way of approaching this. And I think this goes back to often within Christian circles, the situation in the garden is seen as idyllic. Mm-hmm. And there's in some senses a desire to return to the idyllic state rather than focusing in being in proper relationship with God or in God and having access to God's presence. Well, we're, um, we're with you on that. We're with you on that. This is the, the, the garden is, is an ultimate state to return to. But it wasn't um, perfect. No, no, there were problems. Yeah. And I think that within many Christian circles, there's this idea that it was paradise. It was perfect. Although I think that interpreters, biblical scholars wouldn't go that far. Uh, I think it's pretty common in the church. And so this is a point of major difference where you're saying, no, it wasn't perfect. And there was the need. And so then Tell me if I'm tracing this right. But if I assume that, I'm I'm just going with your reading for the moment. If I assume Mm -hmm. that the idea that they are naked and they feel no shame is bad, then Eve is challenged by the snake and Mm -hmm. she eats and she has knowledge and she sees she is naked. Then eating has had positive fruit. It may be achieving it the wrong way. It may not be waiting for God's timing to provide the clothing, but she is seeing a need that she didn't see before, and she's trying to meet that need. That's a very important aspect of what's going on here. Is that how you're reading it? Because then I can definitely see why this is not a fall. This is actually almost, could I go so far as to say, an improvement? That's the crazy thing. However you slice it, whether or not you you see shame as a positive thing or a negative thing here, I think everybody's in agreement that, that clothing is a win. <laughs> I mean, it's got its perks. Um, <laughs> well, especially in, on sunny days. I mean, I, I guess the, the alternative would be to say, no, 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 no. In an idyllic state, uh, humanity is a nudist colony. And I've heard that nobody nobody ever needs any clothing because there's just nothing prurient about nudity. But I don't think that the problem is prurient in the same way that I don't think the the problem with sex is misuse of sex. The, the There's something more fundamental going on. A whole bunch of people wandering around naked pretending everything is okay just seems to not, they seem to be out of touch with who they are. Which is a thing, by the way, really quick, like Christian nudism, that that mm-hmm. happened. That was a movement. And okay, I missed that one. Yeah. Did that, you know about that wow. one, Shane? Did you yeah. hear that one? I think I have seen some stuff about it, yeah. Yeah. D- well, since we both heard about it, it's not just an American thing or a Canadian yeah. thing. Don't look it up. Like, <laughs> oh. But I mean, I'm just saying, like, that's a thing oh. that happened. There was Christian nudism where because of this, they went to church naked, like thinking they were undoing something. So so that happened. But ignoring Christian I nudism. Have so many questions. <laughs> you know what? I do too, but I'm just not gonna search for them. I've had a theory that I've been sitting on 
for a few years regarding the tree of knowledge of good and bad or good and evil, that it doesn't matter what the tree was called. It, it gets its name from the actions that Adam and Eve take against it. Because God says, don't eat it. And what they do is they disobey God. And in the act of disobedience, they now know that there is disobedience in the world. And this is what gives them the knowledge of good and bad. And now that I have this understanding that um, they, they were not only naked, they were naked crafty because it means both of those things. If it's just a tree and God says, hey, don't eat it. Otherwise, you'll know that you can disobey me. Like this is me extrapolating a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they're sitting there naked crafty. Adam has named all the animals, which is no small feat. And Eve can talk to the animals. So that's super high on the wisdom slash naked crafty scale. If, if I'm going to be so bold as to say like, that's, that's serious. They've got a boatload of wisdom to be mm -hmm. able to talk to animals mm -hmm. and name mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And so the shame that they have has nothing to do with their nakedness, but the fact that, well, they just, they know God at a new level. And then what happens is uh, the serpent decides to play with some words. They eat the fruit. They have now disobeyed God. And because they have disobeyed, not the tree, the act of disobedience introduced just the idea that they don't have to listen to God. And now they know what bad is. And because they know what bad is, they have a contrast to what God was before, which was good. So the tree introduced the knowledge of good and bad, not by nature of being a tree, but by the nature of even Adam disobeying God. Well, and in that reading, part of what you may be getting to is you know, what is the genre of this text? And that might relate to someone who might say this is a figurative telling of a historical event. Sure. In a way that interpretation might fit. Historically, I've come across five different interpretations for what's, for this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think yours might kind of fit into one of them if we took it at a figurative reading. So tell me what you think. So <laughs> I've already mentioned one of them is sexual knowledge. Um, another is the idea of omniscience. A third one would be the idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, having moral autonomy to determine good and evil independent of God. Some are saying good and evil wisdom, because we're seeing good and evil as a merism. It's a continuum. It's not good and evil. It's the, the scope of everything in between. Hmm. And then the final one that I've come across is the idea of moral discernment. So being able to distinguish between what is morally good and what is morally evil. And I think within Christianity, we're seeing a lean and more, at least in more recent interpretation into those last three categories, the idea of moral autonomy, wisdom, or moral discernment. Frank, you're saying that the eating from the tree establishes the possibility of disobedience and then that would flow into the interpretations that jen is talking about well i see it as maybe sorry to jump in but i see it as almost part of this moral autonomy we are going to determine we are going to take independence and act independently of what god has commanded and so it gets at the idea of moral autonomy 
Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think within this context, it's seen as if it's independent, if it's autonomy, if it's independence from God, it would be seen as a bad thing. If it's the ability for moral discernment, it would be neutral. Yeah, it sounds it, like it's how it's obtained that would be the problem, but autonomy so, from God would be a problem. So part of the reason hmm. that I wonder this is because the serpent, I'm going to keep using the word, so deal with it, naked crafty. So he's the same naked crafty as Adam and Eve. And if naked crafty can include the ability to know that one is capable of disobeying, then that's how that word gets to mean slightly more naked for Adam and Eve, but slightly more crafty for the serpent, because it includes the Mm -hmm. knowing that one is capable of disobeying, which goes into that moral autonomy. Autonomy, or maybe that moral discernment that can do that. My problem with this is that with which part? With with this idea that the realization that there is the possibility for moral autonomy or the possibility of disobedience, the idea that that's coming up here for the first time, that this is where that breaks out into the text. I don't think that works because the moment that you have a mitzvah, the moment that you have a command that prohibits it, that already tells them you have the capacity to choose. Yeah. So I think there must be something else going on here. I'll take it. I mean, <laughs> well, back to that idea, I'm kind of still stuck back on this. The shame was bad. And the idea that what could have happened could have had good fruit, knowledge of good and evil. So I read something just the other day about this that kind of gave me a clue that we were headed in this direction, but not why. So now I know why, but I want to read this to you Mm. um, and tell me if this is kind of what you're thinking about. So uh this author's talking about um, that even, or, so it's referring to J.H. Hertz, he's referred to as mm-hmm. Rabbi Hertz, yeah. um, says that, you know, you've got two themes, you do have a serious problem with rebellion against God and the idea of free will. But he says, quote, Judaism rejects these doctrines specifically of fall in the original, and original sin. Mm-hmm. Judaism rede- rejects these doctrines. Man was mortal from the first and death did not enter the world through the transgression of Eve. Instead of the fall of man in the sense of humanity as a whole, Judaism preaches the rise of man. And instead of original sin, it stresses original virtue. Judaism clings to the idea of progress. The golden age of humanity is not in the past, but in the future. And all of the children of men are destined to help in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah, I think I would. hmm, There are elements of it that are that are for real. The the term that we have in like the Talmudic literature is a a a dot yachid. That's that word dot again. Yodea. Um, or an Ashkenazish uh, um, the, the this is an idiosyncratic opinion. That's that's not the mainline interpretation at all. Okay, that's part of why I went because I read it the other day and I was like, okay, but I can see where that comes from based on what you've been saying. But that's helpful to me because I was trying to figure out 
is this standard? And I'd actually wanted to ask you about that. No, I don't think it's standard. And the truth is, I think I'll agree with it more than most people will, but with a completely different flavor than he's giving it. Okay. Um, because I think there's also a tremendous tragedy here. Okay. Um, the, I, there are sort of two different directions I want to go in. One is to address the, um, the confluence of shame and sexuality by painting a very different picture of what's going on in the garden um, in terms of sexuality. And then the other thing that's kind of on the horizon of things that I want to do is um, finish this conversation between the snake and Eve and, and then give a very, very different look at it from Maimonides, which I think will tie together a lot of different things that we've said, okay. a lot of different questions that we've raised. Shanine, what do you think? I'm thinking so many things right now. Or is your mind just blown at the moment and you need a minute to <laughs> try to pull it together? As I was preparing for this, the stuff that I was looking at, kind of that idea of moral autonomy came up. And that was like the first time I'd ever heard of it. Mm. Um, but it was like in the act of eating the fruit, they were taking from God, that God was the one who was defining good and evil, but they didn't want to trust God to receive that from him, him anymore. They wanted to take it and define it for themselves. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would see it as a bad thing. Hmm. Why? Um, um, because God is God and God is good. And when we're trying to define that apart from him, we're defining it selfishly and in light of ourselves and not in light of God. Yeah, I'm with you on this. Yeah, that actually raises the question. I kind of mentioned this earlier, and I think we've gotten to the point of, okay, so if God is good, which I think we all agree. Is that then... written anywhere? <laughs> well, it depends on how we define good. So we got a couple of things we think about the tree. Why did God, if God is good and God has said creation is good, you know, what's going on with this tree? So, you know, some have said, okay, well, the tree, there's something wrong with the tree. Well, no, God created all things good. So that doesn't fit within the, the narrative context, at least. Um, the other idea, and I think that this kind of gets at what you're, where, what you were reading about, Shanine, is the idea that, that this was at some level about God perhaps guarding his prerogative and testing and or testing humanity by putting it there. So that's one. But then there's another interpretation that would say that the tree is there and it's there for a reason. It has a future value that humanity just isn't ready for it. So what becomes the issue isn't the knowledge of good and evil. It's the trying to take it on one's own terms and in one's own timing instead of when God says it's okay. So kind of like the idea, you know, getting a driver's license isn't a bad thing. That doesn't mean I'm going to give my 15-year-old special needs child who has epilepsy a driver's license. It's mm. not appropriate. Um, that may not be the best example. Maybe it would be better to say, you know, we're not going to give a five-year-old who doesn't understand, who can't read the pedal, reach the pedals, a driver's license because they're not ready mm -hmm. for it. 
we see this idea um, back to the synoptic gospels where um, Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and he's tempted with, you know, if, if you will bow, you will have be given all the kingdoms of the earth to worship you. Well, from a Christian perspective, all nations worshiping God, worshiping Jesus is not a problem. It's a good thing, but it's the terms on which it would be happening and the timing in which it's happening. So we see this idea both within scripture, but just also within our own understanding. So I think we've got these three different ways and I would be interested, Mayor, to see if what, you know, Shanine has talked about, about this idea of grasping on our own terms that we seem to feel very uncomfortable with, how this is fitting or this idea of future, that it it has value and is good and is needed. And it's this, this idea of autonomy, I think, that is fundamental to this, to this our interpretation. So I want to ask Shanine something. Yeah. Uh, Shanine, how often when you're playing like a role-playing game, do you do something... Because those are team games and I'm doing my first role-playing game like right now. And, you know, it's supposed to be a team and I've intentionally uh, created a character that's an idiot Um, (laughs) because (laughs) he he is. Um, And so he does things that are selfish that I don't want him to do, but because I've created a character and I'm trying to play to him, I make him do bad things. And I feel bad as a result. So I have knowledge that I want to do a good thing. I'm choosing a bad thing for the sake of staying in character, I guess. Um, how often, like, but, but how often when you do role-playing games, you know, when you can create a character that has a weakness, how often do you intentionally do bad things? When you know that you can do a good thing, how often do you choose a bad thing? Um, I mean, it depends on the kind of character I'm playing. Um, I think there's a range of selfish characters who will just do what they want, and then the characters who act for the good of the group. So ones who are more group minded are less likely to just do bad things because they want to. Right. D- does it hurt your conscience at all? Fictional think, people are people too. <laughs> like me personally, uh, depending on what the thing is, um, like um, if, yeah, I think if innocent people are getting hurt in the campaigns, I usually have more of a problem with that. Even though it's a fantasy world, yeah, and and none of it's real, it it still kind of hurts a little bit inside, right? I mean, um, isn't that part of the aesthetic of a role playing game? Like, on the one hand, you want to be able to safely experiment with ways of interacting with the world that aren't your own. And then at the same time, in order for that to be meaningful to you, you can't be, you can't have a psychotic break into that character. You have to also hold on to your regular self in order to feel the distance between who you are and who the character is you're playing. Yeah. Um, I just, 
and the reason I guess I'm going this way is because we're talking about like knowing good and bad and moral autonomy that, you know, we can create fantasy worlds where uh, we can do anything. The rules of the role-playing games can be totally different. Like, you know, what's good and bad in, in those games. Like, I mean, there's sorcery and there's witches and th those are just typical and casting spells are fine. And it's a weird disconnect where I have to accept a different kind of good in that fantasy world. And sometimes that makes it hard for me to figure out how to equate my my non-fantasy brain with the fantasy brain and reckon, reconcile uh, that. And I don't, uh, I struggle with it sometimes knowing that I, I have intentionally created a character um, who is selfish. And in the case of uh, the game that we played last week, he has a, a fear of water and we were combating fire elementals, which are these little tiny critters that are made of fire. And, be, but because my character is afraid of water, I can't do the easy thing, which is just put them in the water. And that would have ended everything. And because he's incredibly arrogant and boastful, he, I'll save some of the details, but and he has a gift of taunt, which is the ability to just run his mouth. Maybe not so off character for me there, but um, <laughs> he makes fun of the diminutive stature and presentation uh, by exposing himself in a lewd way. That's what my character does. And then urinates into a bottle just as a taunt. And I'm doing all of this feeling incredible guilt, but I'm doing a character thing where I don't want to do this, but this is what this guy would do. I'm just then, amazed by how well this connects with our whole discussion. And, but but he but I know this is wrong. My character has to do this because he's totally selfish and he is afraid of water. But then the next character comes in his turn because we're still trying to defeat fire elementals. And my only contribution to the game has been I stunned them by urinating into a bottle very suddenly. And this guy has the gift or whatever of a tornado. Sudden urination attack. And, and so we made a pea tornado that put out the fire elementals and defeated them all, which is the most ridiculous thing that they all, all of these people had played role-playing games. I had never played one before. And so they said, we've never done this, but this is kind of hilarious. And so it taking that ridiculous fantasy world where I had no choice but to stay true to a character doing that, it gives me this idea as we go back into a non-fantasy thing like we're looking at scripture of right and wrong of how do we deal address the fact that we know that we can do good things and we know that we can do bad things and we like i can't even in a fantasy i can't construct an i an idyllic scenario even in fantasy role-playing games i can't i can't create a perfect utopic idyllic situation. I'm I, my characters still have struggle and I have still have struggle. And I'm just looking at this and I'm wondering why can't we, why can't we write better fantasies where everything is perfect? And why can't we have better role-playing games where everything's perfect? And, you know, we can address the knowledge of good and bad in these ways. That's taken me back in, into this. It's like, well, and that might get us to, where we come down with this idea of really 
original sin that comes out of this ties into Romans 5. So that's not something that we're necessarily seeing in the and then not only Romans 5 but also within Christian interpretation it it gets more widely developed even then but that's taking it in a very different direction than what Mare has been talking about as far as we right. focus on fallen original sin and then we are all sinful but that's very much a Christian interpretation. So where would you take it, Mayor? I mean, we've already said, pointed to the possibility that what's going on here has positive upside to it. Yeah. First, I'd just like to relate this idea of fantasy back to what Shanine was bringing up before about personally defining good and evil so the at a distance yeah, moral autonomy is the, the positive way of saying it. But if we can wrestle conjugate it into the negative, um, where you're morally um, breaking from authority, or I, I'm not sure exactly what, I mean, there are lots of, lots of negative ways we could slant this. But the, the point is that you're essentially propagating a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're saying if you're saying I'm doing this at a distance from reality, I'm going to now personally define things. So now you're you're stuck in a world of fantasy. And that's that's a yeah, I, I wanna wanna do more with that. But in terms of original sin, uh I don't know how to how to fully address that idea. I don't um, think we wanna do it here because, because yeah, there there are I mean, starting from the second day of creation, you know, literally the first verses of Genesis, I'll start to show you how things are not exactly what we were hoping for, maybe. There are certain problems inherent in being a creation separate from, separated from, in some sense, independent of God, which said in very early, and those kind of existential problems, not moralistic problems, not moral problems, not somebody chose to do bad, but just this is the nature of being a created being. Th those things start to pop up very early. And so I want to see these eventual moral failings as essentially functions of those things. And those things, it doesn't make sense to really relate to them as sin, because there's no act of at least it doesn't make sense to relate to them as original sin or rebellion or something like that because they're they're simply inherent in the nature of of being a creation okay that that was very abstract but no um, it, so it sounds like what you're saying is while we will tie the idea of human sin or failing imperfection whatever take we want on it while we tie it to the original instance that we have recorded of disobedience, you're tying it to the very fundamental nature of who we are because we are creatures. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you take it back even earlier and it's unavoidable. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so, then, so then I kind of feel like, well, then... From a logical perspective, that would raise the question for me, 
okay, this is going to sound awful, but raise the question for me of God's goodness, because if he has designed me and if he knows he has designed me in such a way that I am going to fall short, and then he puts me in a position where I'm going to be fall to fall short and I'm going to get kicked out of his presence, then he set me up to fail. What if falling short isn't actually a problem? If it, for me, I don't, for me, it is, a, it has to be a problem because getting excluded from God's presence would be a problem. Who are you to say you should be in God's presence? Well, if he put me there, then it's okay. But then he came, but he put me there to start with, or he put me in a place where I could be by placing, and I'm, I'm talking humanity generally, not me personally. Okay. I am, I am as. I mean, if you're, if you're choosing between, if you're choosing between non-existence on the one hand and getting to spend one uh, billionth of a terasecond in the presence of God, you know, even if you're banished from it thereafter, it's obviously better to spend the one billionth of a terasecond to the presence of God rather than does not exist. Mm. I mean, if you if you couple that to eternal damnation, I could see why that doesn't look so good. But you're but not, if not if a, you're not making that tie. No. So definitely yeah, not. I'm just I'm looking at this and it's like God keeps him but God keeps inviting back into his presence. Yeah. Oh, you've given Way me even better, right? <laughs> Two totally different ways of looking at it, and I just I need to sit with it for a while. Before I promise something very titillating about uh, sex in the Garden of Eden, and um, because original sin is so deeply linked to ideas about sex, I'd really like to to bring some of this out, but but I don't have to. It's gonna if it's just gonna make people uncomfortable. I feel like that might have to be like a whole new episode. So, Shanine, you're going to get stuck coming back. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, okay, we can we can do it as another episode. Um, Doesn't have to be right now. I, I, I just want to ask one question, though. And I want to ask every single person here this question. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to start with you, Mayor, and then we're just going to go all the way around. Did they lose their aroma when they sinned? Did they lose their cleverness? We're still naked under our clothes. But I'm talking about that wisdom sense. We know that they were naked, but because it also means clever. Did they lose it when, when they sinned? I can answer both ways, but I'm going to answer yes for now because it's going to tie together with what I want to hit you with after we do this round. Jen. I am not fully on board with the cleverness and with them being both naked and clever. So I, I am still very much reading this as they were naked and there was no shame. And I'm, I think we may be able to tie it in, but I'm going to have to go spend more time really digging into the whole passage to get there. So I have to, I have to abstain because I'm not buying the premise to start with. All right. That's fair. Shanine. I mean, I think I would say yes, because it's tied in with that. No shame. And it feels like everything changed in regards to that. 
So the reason that I'm wondering is because I'm wondering what sin is now. In in light of this, mm. like like we because that's kind of where we've gotten right is what I didn't see that coming at all. What what changed? It, did the sin cause them to lose knowledge and wisdom? Is is ah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. is the pursuit? of wisdom like uh, there's that verse in proverbs um the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction so if they lost wisdom were they not fearing god and is that what why we should pursue wisdom to regain the wisdom that was lost in the garden and like does that make sense is that well if if that's the way you're pursuing it you wouldn't pursue wisdom initially you you would pursue your atashem you would pursue the awe of god because that's what would allow you to restore the wisdom right if i if i understood you yeah if you were to directly pursue wisdom without the awe of God, it would be attempting a kind of mechanical reconstruction. Like, oh, okay, a hurricane blew through this orchard, so now I'm going to take the pieces of the broken trees and glue them back together in order to have what I had before. But that that's not going to work. Right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm just trying to figure out what is sin? What is that? What is the sin? And I don't know if that's the question that we're trying to answer here, but I'm suddenly starting to wonder a lot. Um, I mean, I mean, in the Christian world, like we have lots of ideas of what sin is, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's an expanded meaning of the sin if there's a possibility that wisdom is what was lost here. I think I've got something to show you that is going to blow your mind with reference to that. Okay. Okay. So this is from the very beginning of Moren Nevuchim from the guide of the perplexed. Have you heard of it? Um, It's uh, it is the, great philosophical work of Maimonides. It's been translated uh, several times into uh, English. Um, the, the best English translation that I'm aware of is by uh, Pinus. Uh, that's spelled P-I-N-E-S, but it's pronounced Pinus, since we're on that anyway. This is uh, part one, chapter two. Maimonides discusses a visitor he got, a prospective student. And the student came along and he said, It would at first sight appear from scripture that man was originally intended to be perfectly equal to the rest of the animal creation, which is not endowed with intellect, reason, or power of distinguishing between good and evil, but that Adam's disobedience to the command of God procured him that great perfection, which is the peculiarity of man, 
that is, the power of distinguishing between good and evil, the noblest of all the faculties of our nature, the essential characteristic of the human race. Thus appears strange that the punishment for rebelliousness should be the means of elevating man to a pinnacle of perfection to which he had not attained previously. This is equivalent to saying that a certain man was rebellious and extremely wicked, wherefore his nature was changed for the better, and he was made to shine as a star in the heavens. Seems like a good question, right? Oh, come on. If you accept, if you <laughs> come accept on, give me premise, some enthusiasm here. <laughs> What's that? Premise, it's a good question. It feels like a good question, right? Okay, now uh, Maimonides gives him quite a reply. He says, you imagine you can understand a book which has been the guide of past and present generations when you for a moment withdraw from your lusts and appetites and glance over its contents as if you were reading a historical work in some poetical composition? Collect your thoughts and examine the matter carefully. He owned him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty spicy words there. I need to pack that away somewhere because that could come up. And yeah. So he continues. The intellect which was granted to man as the highest endowment was bestowed on him before his disobedience. With reference to this gift, the Bible states that, quote, man was created in the form and likeness of God. On account of this gift of intellect, man was addressed by God and received his commandments, as it is said, and the Lord God commanded Adam. That's uh, Genesis 2.16. For no commands are given to the brute creation or to those who are devoid of understanding. Right? So you learn from the fact that he got a mitzvah that he must have an intellect. So through the intellect, man distinguishes between true and false. This faculty Adam possessed perfectly and completely. The right and wrong are terms employed in the knowledge of conventions, social constructions, not in that of necessary truths. So this is a very important distinction made by many um, medieval philosophers in the Jewish and Islamic world. The distinction is between mashurat, which comes from the word uh, mashur, which means uh, well-accepted or obvious. And it's basically things which are acceptable socially social convention, social construction, those sort of things. And it's contrasted to ma'akulat, things that are realized by the ma'akim, by the, the mind. So on the one hand, you have the good and evil, which is socially constructed or socially acceptable stuff. And then on the other hand, you have truth and falsity, and you have the intellect. And Maimonides is saying that prior to the breakdown with the tree, that the man and woman have a perfect intellect prior to that, and that the episode with the, the snake and the tree moves them from, from a view of the world, a perspective based on truth and falsity, to a perspective based on highly relative, highly personal uh, good and evil. That are socially constructed. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I've never seen it translated that way, but when I put together different translations and connotations, I don't think that social construction is, is a bad way of reading it. We went from an absolute truth and false to a relative. Morality, in a sense, like you have this big debate in philosophy, where it's like, um, it, are good and evil objective categories? Are they real categories? This debate goes back and forth, and there are really interesting arguments on all sides. Uh, moral realism is the yeah. chapter title for that debate. 
you might expect that in the moral realism debate that a religious thinker, any religious thinker, would come down on the side of saying morality, good and evil, are real things. That that's part of the basic nature of the universe. And Maimonides doesn't do that at all. He says that what people think of as morality is relative. This is not ultimate truth. Hmm. That, that's a shocking thing, I think. Yeah, well, so, but we're getting, it sounds like you're, it's, it sounds like it's going beyond good and evil. Yeah. Or morality, let's say. It's going beyond morality to deeper truth and greater truth. I mean, you'll notice that false. when he talked about the commandments, mm -hmm. he talked about the commandments in terms of truth and falsity. Yeah. And in another section, when he talks about the love of God, he says that it's forbidden to teach a mature mind that you should do good and avoid doing evil for reward and punishment. Forbidden to teach people that. And that oh. the a person who achieves the highest levels of love of God will do emet because it is emet. They will do truth because it is truth part of what this is getting at wouldn't be the idea of moral autonomy, but the idea, very idea of autonomy from God, that when there is true, mature love of God, mm -hmm. there is not going to be autonomy. And it is in that place where you know and live truth. This is funny because I don't know how to map autonomy. I don't know how to map that word onto the concepts of fantasy and freedom. Because when he's talking about doing truth because it's truth, he's talking about somebody who is maximally free. My question would be, can you find truth independent of love of God? Can you find oh. truth independent of God? That's when I'm talking about autonomy. I'm talking mm. about independence, freedom, whatever, independence mm. of God is what um, I'm getting at not just this idea of autonomy or independence or freedom mm -hmm. to act. I think you do still have freedom to act, but the idea of independence or autonomy from God and in this thinking, could you live truth, have that experience of truth without God? No. Okay. No, you, you can have wisdom among atheists. There could be wisdom, there could be technical knowledge, all of that. But the first rational principle for him, and this is actually the very first thing that he writes in his legal work, the Mishnah Torah, is the foundation of all wisdom is the knowledge that there is God. The truth is he doesn't use the word God, and that's important. But that's another discussion for another time. But the, the point is that the, the grounding for, for all reason is the, the understanding of existence. And that didn't really help, did it? We've got so many places we could keep going down and digging. And I think this is, you know, maybe laying a great foundation for another discussion and rather than digging into that piece. But what I'm seeing, you know, mm. we've talked about all kinds of different things. We've talked about eating fruit. We've talked about, you know, the tree, the serpent, all these different pieces. But I feel like part of what we're really coming back around to is, and you mentioned um, you know, I'd read that quote by, I think, was it uh, Rabbi Hertz? Uh, and mm -hmm. you said you only got partway there because you also see great tragedy. And so, you know, so can however, you see that now? 
Well, yeah, I saw it anyway, but I see where you're coming. And I, I think it's, yeah. it's situating us within space time in a different kind of way that embeds us in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend that we are mm -hmm. culturally embedded. And we, we just assume that's normal and we can't get beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, and that sounds kind of like what you're, you're talking about. Is it at least sort of where you're, what you're. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the great, so whereas, but I think part of the great tragedy, because if you're saying that, that we can come to a place where with love of God, where we can live truth. And so it's kind of a transcendence, what, where our disagreements going to be is in what it looks like, how we get to that place where there is love of God. And I think that between Jews and Christians, there's where we're going to part ways because mm -hmm. in a Christian reading that ultimately has to come through Jesus. But either way, the disruption in our ability to love God and, you know, being the Old Testament teacher and love neighbor, um, the <laughs> disruption in our ability to do that is part of the great tragedy. And that here then it's coming, when we come to the text, maybe not necessarily seeking answers, but going back to what Tracy said, not seeking answers, but seeking God, seeking to know him, seeking that awe of God, as Frank was talking about, that will lead to wisdom or lead to truth in this sense. Well, the and danger, there, there's a danger in just going in for love of God. And okay. it's that people become very maudlin and they wind up seeking an emotional experience mm. rather than seeking knowledge of, of truth. Okay. And so actually the, the way to love of God for Maimonides is learn science. That's interesting. Okay. So when I'm saying love of God, yes, in, I'd say in modern circles, love is very much an emotional thing. Um, it's interesting that you say science because there's this, then there's this very much this idea of pursuit of knowledge. So within Christian tradition, maybe faith seeking understanding would fit within this, not in the same way. Um, but it is this idea where knowledge matters, but then but when I'm saying love of God there, you know, I do have affection in mind, but I'm also very much thinking about the ways that love is a demonstrated action throughout scripture and that it is living mm -hmm. according to what you would say, you know, the mitzvot, it's living according to God's instructions, commands. Mm -hmm. And while we might. Well, I mean, Maimonides would be very critical. And uh, not only Maimonides, this is a, a major theme in Jewish medieval thought, okay. is that there are many, many people who are engaged on the level of doing the prescribed actions, but who are not really engaged on the level of yeah. the, the, the mind. They're not all there. They're just okay. going through the motions. Yeah. And I, I think within Christianity, we would say you can't go through all the motions because of our own fallenness. Um, uh, so I don't want to sit there and say, I think we can earn relationship with God. Please don't think that that's what I'm saying at all. Um, it's one of those contentious uh, dogmatic things, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that's, a, but I just, I, there's so many pieces, but I think what we're coming back to is well, the, the, either way the, thing the tragedy about, is law of loss is the loss of presence of God and 
the loss of our true ability to love him. Yeah. And the, the curious reason for, like, it sounds like science is sort of pulled out of a hat here. Like, mm -hmm. why would that be the, the way to love of God? But it relates very specifically to the problem that we've been discussing all along, that if the issue is that we're, we're stuck in relativistic good and bad, you know, what's good in my eyes, what's bad in my eyes, yeah. what's preferable or, or not preferable to science me. Science is a higher law, like like math or something. It's well, language. I mean, sci science isn't, um, you know, a, a magic es escape hatch that just all of a sudden pops you into truth because it's an empirical process. But the point is that through that empirical process, that's what allows you to get beyond your assumptions and your presumptions and your relativistic thinking about how things should be in order to get to something beyond yourself. That's precisely the, the project of science. Of course, scientists change their minds and disagree and... Well, but that, that's the point. You have to change your mind. Yeah. If you don't change your mind, then you're just stuck in whatever you thought. Yeah. Oh gosh, we have covered so much, guys. See, <laughs> this is what we do. We wind up with one thing that we're going to talk about, and then we wind up exploring all these different rabbit trails. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you have found kind of helpful for how you think about this passage or what some of the implications might be for us? Or are you just still kind of reeling from all this stuff getting thrown out there? I'm assuming you're not, but I, <laughs> I want to make space for that. You're smiling. You're smiling. That's a good sign. <laughs> I there's a lot to mull over. It's just a lot. Um, the biggest thing that I'm thinking about right now is just that idea how like Christians view the eating of the fruit as kind of like the trigger for the brokenness and the sinful nature. But it seems that Mare is saying that there was something wrong beforehand already yeah it, it kind of changes our way of thinking about all of it and mm -hmm. where, where where sin is and do you have anything that's coming to mind frank if we wanted to talk about ways of incorporating some of what we've been talking about into our thinking or lives seeking the awe of god the reverence of god and looking looking for truth you know um elevating this beyond like good and bad and looking for truth and especially the idea, if we can consider that there's knowledge, you know, that Adam and Eve were very wise, that there's something to be had in seeking God where wisdom, I think, can be revealed. For me, I think what I'm going to be reflecting on is the idea of nakedness and shame. I want to go do some reading and some thinking about that and thinking about the ideas of development in our understanding and growth. But I also really, I liked this idea of truth and thinking and just, I mean, you're presenting some new ideas about how we think about our humanity, but I love Frank, what you were saying about this cultivating, seeking and awe yeah. of God. Yeah. And that's something we're all called to, I think. Yeah. Well, that's, I think we can call it a day. How about y'all? Yep. This has been great. Shanine, thank you so much for coming along. I came in with a lot of questions and am leaving with even more questions. <laughs> I, <was just> gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I also just really liked what Frank said, um, like seeking 
God and awe and truth. And I think that is the best takeaway from all this is that there's always more seeking to do. Amen. There's more achievements to unlock. (laughs) God seek his presence. Thanks for joining us and Shanine Thompson. Be sure to check out her blog, podcasts, and social media. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash 2C1J. And by sharing the podcast with friends. We've got lots of amazing material coming your way, and your support really helps. And again, I'm offering three workshops, Great Hebrew Men, Great Hebrew Women, and Hebrew. If you would like to zoom me into your community for one session or for a whole series, get in touch and we'll customize the workshop to your community. My contact information is in the description below. Hope you enjoyed. Be well and be blessed.